Hey folks, welcome to Pivot Point. My name is Joseph DiBiase and this is my podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back. Yes, indeed. It is another version, another episode of Pivot Point. We're getting close to the end of the year. 2020 is about to leave us. That felt good. Can't wait for this this year to, to get the hell out of here. 2021, who knows what it's going to bring. You know, uh, I'll share this with you. At the beginning of 2020, I was in an acting class, in the acting class that I'm still in, at The Imagined Life. And the first class in January, Steve, my teacher, Steve Tazert, said that this is the year of undaunted courage. That really struck me. And we went on to talk about courage and being courageous and and what that means and how do you apply that. Little did anybody know that we were right around the corner from a pandemic. In that class and at that time, it struck me so deeply that I just knew I needed to be reminded that this was going to be the year of undaunted courage. So I found a drawing of a man in the desert like he was crawling with one arm extended forward, you know, like reaching for an imaginary glass of water. And I wrote on the picture, the year of undaunted courage. And by that outstretched arm, I wrote, what if? And then I made the picture, a background picture on my phone, so that every time I turn my phone on or my phone would ring or I get a text, I would see that picture and I would be reminded of the year of undaunted courage and what if. What if is one of those slogans that I use all the time whenever I'm doing any kind of creativity. If I'm writing some music and I'm at a spot where I'm now kind of overview, you know, you give it an overview, it's the old what if. What if I changed this? What if I added that? The same is as acting. What if there is another way of approaching it? What if I connected this part of the story to that part of the story? How does that make me feel? Same thing when I'm music editing. Music editing is a lot of what ifs, right? Especially if you're doing temp scoring. And it's like, well, what if I tried it this way? What if I tried it with a smaller ensemble? What if I tried it with a larger ensemble? What if is one of my favorite expressions. It keeps things alive. And I'll tell you where I learned it or where it really made an impact on me. It's from when I was studying privately. I was studying composition privately with the late Jack Smalley. And I had this ostinato figure going. For those of you who don't know what an ostinato figure, it is a repetitive figure. So it'd be something like, something like that, right? And Jack would say to me, what if you just took out every fifth note? <laughs> and I kind of looked at him sideways, you know, that side eye. Like, 
what are you talking about? Just randomly take out every fifth note? And he says, yeah. So I did it. And it was really interesting. And what he, what he showed me was that when we do a repetitive figure like that, an ostinato, the ear fills in the gaps. And it leaves room for other things. So the what if is really something that sticks with me now. And I'm always looking to see where can I apply what if. So as we leave 2020 and enter into 2021, I lay this out there for you. What if? And you fill in those blanks. What if you dedicate more time to maybe it's practice? What if you decide to write music every day? What if you decide to devote more time in creativity? Maybe you draw. I don't know. But as we go into 2021, keeping the idea of what if in front of us, keeping the idea of the options that could be before us, even if we're not looking for them, even if it's in the opposite direction of what we thought we wanted to go in, it's just an idea of keeping an open-mindedness. So, something to think about. Now, I told you I would catch you up to date on the project that I was talking about last week. But not every week is there a change. I really don't have much to say about it at this point, other than we're still in the same place of not knowing what's happening on the composer front. And we are one, two, three weeks away from finishing, starting the finish. So yeah, it's going to be real interesting. I think the uh, Christmas and New Year's holiday uh, is going to be interesting for me, but I'll keep you up to date. <laughs> You'll know what's happening. Okay. Today's guest is Stephen Saltzman. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Stephen. He is a multi-talented individual. He is a wonderful pianist. You know, as a jazz pianist, you'll hear him talk about jazz uh, in the podcast, and, and he'll talk about not being up to par, if you will. He's a wonderful pianist. I've heard him play. Um, I love when he gets in the pocket and there is some beautiful, beautiful piano that comes out of this man. He's also a guitarist. He, I've used him, uh, I've had him play on some of my scores. I've also had him play harmonica on my scores. And he's also a music editor working on big films. And he and I have worked together on The Revenant. And he's also an educator. He's written a curriculum for music editing and for composing and mixing that is being taught at the UCLA Extension School. And he's also an author. And you'll hear us talk more about that during the podcast. So today's story, however, is about his journey. And he is definitely a person who did not get there by the way the crow flies. And you all know what I mean by that. He really had a focus. And I'm not going to give you spoiler alerts, but one of the things that he did say, which is really interesting to me, is that his journey 
brought opportunities to have different branches of this creativity. And I think that ties into the what if. We just never know how our journey goes, what comes around the corner, what are the opportunities that cause us to all of a sudden say to ourselves, what if? And that's what you're going to hear on the podcast today. Stephen Saltzman talking about his journey and how he discovered opportunities and the what if, as I'll put it, and how he found the different branches of his creativity. This is Stephen Saltzman and I talking about his journey. Take us on a ride, Stephen. I'm glad you're here. Glad you're on the show. I'm glad you said yes. For a while there, you were not so sure you wanted to do this. So take me back, Mr. Stephen. Where were you born? Well, first, before I do that, I want to thank you, Joseph, for pursuing. And I just want to say that I'm really honored. I'm really touched and honored, both professionally and personally, that you would invite me to be part of your collection, because I've heard about half your podcasts, at least I've been able to get through. And I know some of them, but some I don't, but I know that they're all like totally the top of the top. And I'm truly honored to be included in your collection. And uh, I'm, I'm very humbled and modest about it because uh, I, <laughs> while you feel like I rate, you know, sometimes <laughs> I feel like, you know, I, I don't know if I'm up there, but, but I'm going to take your, your opportunity and your invitation. So before we begin, I just wanted to, well, thank you, know, you. Thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, I hope that you enjoy this and, and your, re- your listeners can. Yeah. Connect. Oh, absolutely. And it's not a question about credits or status because there are people, yeah, oh, who have good. been. <laughs> because, yeah, it's, it's really about the journey. It's really about how you were affected by your journey and why you made some of the choices you've made. And how did you come about making those choices? It's really about that. And I'm really glad that you said yes. So let's go back. I don't remember where you were born. Where, where did you grow up? Uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis. Minnesota. Ah, there we go. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know you have one sister, correct? Two older sisters. Two older sisters. Oh, I've only met one then. You're holding out on me there, Stephen. (laughs) And the one I met is a violinist. Well, was a violinist or still plays like tell me about your childhood tell me like when you're younger my sister's about we're about five years apart uh the oldest barbara who you met um went to she was really on a professional path for violin mm-hmm. um that didn't happen for i i can't really cite all the details in that particularly but she went to art school and uh completed the degree of in fine mm-hmm. arts and pursued that in most of her life uh, and married, had five kids, and you know they're all healthy and have had mm. got grandchildren. So, so uh, she still is involved with art and trying to do it online. I mean, she's amazing, you know. So uh, she's not like making big bucks or anything like that, but she's pu- pursuing um, that kind mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Uh, 
uh, dream. And that does follow a little bit with my father, who is an artist, mm -hmm. um, as you may know. Um, and he found in our minds, our family's minds in the, in the community, artist community, quite a bit of success, uh -huh. uh, both in selling his art, uh, uh, mostly known for oils and watercolors, but also sculptures and huge stained glass design, very well known in the Midwest area for designing stained glass windows for synagogues, Lutheran churches, also wow. huge copper welded reliefs, architectural work inside, outside. He taught at McAllister College for many, many years, fine art. So uh, you didn't ask me about his career, yeah. but it impacts us as children. Yeah. yeah. And particularly, I think, you know, Barbara for her art endeavors mm. um, and mine for music in, in a kind of an offshoot way a little bit. He, he was working forever. And mm. up until almost the day he died, if he will, if he could, you know, he would have, you know, that kind of thing. Right. How old was he when but he passed? He was, he's 90. Wow. Yeah. Um, cancer and mm -hmm. metastasized. So it wasn't great situation, but um, that is what it was. Um, my other sister in the middle is in a creative field as well. She went to, she was actually on a very good path for dance, modern dance. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. Did not. Really, there were some blockages there for, for their success, and she shifted into natural foods. Both my sisters are natural foods and, and by personal, but also my other sister wrote a number of, uh, uh, the middle sister, Juliana Sate, mm -hmm. has written a number of cookbooks in wow. natural cookery, in her own kind of language and method, and she's got an online course. And so, and so her and, and also teaching chefs to cook this way and so she's really developed a whole line and career as uh, creative in the natural foods cooking world uh, mm -hmm. and still still has her hand in that so that's kind of their story a little bit mm. and how was it that with your dad being a painter artist and doing stained glass window type art which i find really interesting and where did the music come from was well, there a musician I, in the family? Was well, I'm not sure. Was... So my, my mom was a pianist. Okay. Okay. Now, really more involved with uh, English and these kind of things. She, her, her claim was she started working with dyslexia and learning disabilities back in the day when it wasn't yeah. common or popular, if you yeah. will. Um, but she always played piano. And it was really, it was not a professional direction, but for fun, she played with friends, forehand piano, and they would have just really... She took lessons here and there, but, uh, and she was okay, not yeah. great, you know, but it, we always had a grand piano in the mm, house. Mm -hmm. So it was always there, you know, and my dad had a great stereo system. And uh, one of the things where you'd act, so an offshoot before I continue with that is one of the first pieces I remember really being attracted to was uh, the Firebird Suite, right? Uh -huh. And I would put that on and listen to it. And I was just like, blown away. And mm. I think as a kid, this is when I was a kid, I would lie under the piano and put on the Firebird Suite. I would just kind of, because it was kind of like a cave, right? Under the yeah. piano. Yeah. Cool thing. And um, of course, one of the attractions was the, the, the LP cover. Yeah. I mean, it had this fantastic kind of imaginary firebird, you know? Yeah. And so this was, of course, as a, as a young kid, but, you know, that was one of my first pieces that I remember, you know, listening to. 
uh, among some other things. He liked jazz and, and things like that. So this yeah. was around our home. It wasn't in a professional vein, but, mm. you know, there, there was music, mm. you know, around. Um, and so. so did you start playing piano? Like a lot of us started playing instruments from grade school when it was like, yeah, it's time to choose an instrument, which, you know, I don't know if they have that kind of curriculum these days in school, but you got to choose an instrument. And was that for you the same way? Or did you just naturally, organically gravitate to the piano? Uh, I didn't, quote unquote, choose that piano. Uh, It was like, as you say, many, many kids take piano lessons because it's time to take piano lessons. So I did. Um, Mm -hmm. I hated them and I didn't practice. And this is not uncommon. And I think, I don't even know how long it was a couple of years or something. And I stopped. (laughs) Wow. Um, So I don't remember exactly when, what year, what, how how old I was around that Mm -hmm. time. Probably not, uh, you know, maybe what, six or seven or eight or something. Mm, Yeah. So that was a, that was really officially short lived. Uh-huh. Um, when you talk about instruments in school and what you learn, the the fir- I would say the first uh, kind of official instrument that I picked up through school was the cornet or trumpet. I played a cornet. Did so, I know that? Holy yeah, cow! <laughs> okay. Yeah, I showed you my cornet. But anyway, um, or maybe I had give. I think I gave it to my. I think I. Gave I don't think I've ever seen your cornet there. No, maybe not. This was more like uh, high school or mm-hmm. middle school, high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I played that and then uh, took some private lessons from a trumpet player from the Minneapolis Symphony. So I was kind of, you know, in good hands there. And I, yeah. again, I don't remember the timing of this. This is a number of years. And it was okay. I wasn't, I don't, in my recollection, I don't particularly feel like I totally loved it or wanted to be a professional necessarily. I just mm-hmm. kind of wasn't in that mindset necessarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But around the time <laughs> that I got braces. Uh-huh. Oh, the, well, there the, goes the trumpet playing. The teacher was saying, you know, I think you should hold off until you get your braces off and then come back, you know, cause right. you're good yeah. or something like this. Right. Well, I, I didn't come back. So mm-hmm. it kind of <laughs> put the, uh, put the panache on it. I think around that time, when the braces were coming off, I was, you know, I'll date myself, you can guess, but I mean, it was like rock and roll and I want to learn guitar, you know? So the guitar was really the instrument that I, uh, that I picked up. Yeah. That's what you gravitated to. Yeah. And then you started playing that. Did you play that in bands when you were in high school? Yeah. I still have the guitar, of course. It wasn't a bad first guitar. So I still have it. An electric single pickup uh, Hummingbird Melody Maker, which is, uh, I'm sorry, Hummingbird's acoustic, the uh, Melody Maker Epiphone. But the deal was, as most parents do, is like, we'll buy you an electric guitar, right? And an amp, but you have to take lessons, right? Right. I'm not uncommon. So I'm taking lessons at the guitar shop. And it's literally, you know, like maybe common lessons of those days, you know, uh, uh, Yankee Doodle went to town. You know, you're plucking, you know, you know, you're you're learning the notes and things like that. Right. So it wasn't particularly rock and roll or anything like that. I may have stretched that a little bit, but uh, those lessons didn't last long either. <laughs> uh, oh, so geez. I um 
I, uh, but, but I was hooked and, and, you know, and, and yeah. there you go. so I actually did pull a couple friends together and we were practicing and, and playing, playing popular songs. I wasn't writing songs at that point, but I mean, you know, Led Zeppelin, you know, Rolling Stones. I mean, I mean, all these kind of things, you know, so. So why um, a music college? I mean, you went to Berkeley, right? But did you go to a different university first? Yeah. Um, so around that time in high school, of the guitar playing and bands and this kind of thing, there was a, and this kind of probably propelled me into thinking more seriously about music, particularly for college. Mm -hmm. There was a program in Minneapolis uh, through the high school called, um, I'm not remembering, there was a title where the city supported, it was like urban music or something like this, where in your, I think, senior year or almost senior year, the year before or sophomore year, you would actually be able to leave school mm-hmm. early in the day, bring your instrument and instruments, and they, they, they attracted, they were only like four or five kids from high schools all over. Mm-hmm. So somehow I applied and got selected. And you literally go downtown to uh, like a, a loft or an apartment or a room. It was very funky. And a guy would instruct you into playing contemporary music and you would play as a group. Oh, wow. Right. That's fantastic. And this was all year. And so literally I got into this program and we were playing, I mean, this one woman, you know, taught me, you know, more about, you know, finger picking and I was playing, you know, we like Leo Kaki. There was this one guy that was this, this kid, I'm telling you, Django Reinhardt, he was just like amazing. I mean, like, (laughs) and he had it down. I'm telling you, this guy could play this kind of jazz just like him. Yeah. And and like some of these kids, like there were only like five or six of us in this one group. We were the folk acoustic group. Uh huh. So this program was kind of critical, I think, in allowing me to play with others in a different environment rather than your buddies playing, you know, Rolling Stone songs. You were writing songs. Mm -hmm. So we each had to write and play on each other's songs, right? It's kind of like film school where yeah. you come in and everyone does, one guy does the, you know, the sound, the script, the directing, and then you switch off and all that, right? Yeah. So, and then, so there was the acoustic group, that was me, acoustic guitar, and a rock and roll group, and then there was a band group. Now, the end goal was to do a recording. The end product would be a performance, uh-huh. live performance, and a recording, which happened. So after this time, we did it, and I still have the LP. It's amazing. Oh, that's you know? great. And yeah. there are some great tunes in there, like arrangements and tunes. And it was just this, what a, what a, what a fun time that yeah. you don't usually, this opportunity. So what I did for, for college was I went to, um, I applied to a bunch of colleges. Not, I didn't have great grades. They were, you know, average, above average kind of thing. But there's a college in uh, Minnesota, which is part of the state system, called Moorhead State College. And it's literally on the border of Fargo, North Dakota. Mm-hmm. Moorhead, they, it's a sister city, and they're split by a river. Needless to say, very cold. Mm. Uh, of course, Minneapolis is cold. <laughs> right. But I applied there, and they have a program called... Uh, it's called comprehensive musicianship. So I went into a liberal arts school to get liberal arts, but also music. Mm-hmm. Now that school was really designed for 
education, music educators. So it was designed to, you graduate with a education in music, to teach music or, or be a music therapist maybe or something like that. Not a rock and roll performer, not you right, know, like a right. world-class singer or something like that. So you went there and how long did you stay and when did you decide to go to Berkeley and why? Okay. Um, this school, so Moorhead State College was, had a program in music that was one of 10 in the United States. So Oberlin had it, for example. Mm. It was a unique program where you had one teacher as a core music teacher that you saw five days a week. And then you had your liberal arts classes. And then you had like electives, offshoots. Mm. Of mm-hmm. It was an amazing program. I was only there two years. So I didn't graduate on purpose because that's when I went to Berkeley. I decided to go to Berkeley. But let me tell you a little bit about this program, and then you can edit it if you want. It was fantastic. Mm. So this guy, again, this total like long-haired right. guy with glasses, black hair, and he loved Pink Floyd. Uh-huh. So how many college professors do you get in school that's like a Pink Floyd guy? You know what right. I mean? Yeah. Or, or <laughs> you know. And so we would study, get this, you're a freshman in music school, and you're studying uh, Balinese music, and you played it to experience it. John Cage, there was an electronic music lab that was run by Steve Kimmel, who was into electronic music and Native American music. And you would go into this little lab, which is like a room upstairs somewhere, and he had an ARP and a bukla, I don't know if you guys know that, and a mm. ribbon, ribbon tape, right? The ribbon tape, yeah, what's a bukla? A bukla was one of the first uh, mini patch bay synthesizers. Okay. Right? So it had VCAs, VSOs, oscillators, and literally you patch the sounds and man, you know, you turn them yeah, off. Sure. Well, these cars are very popular. You look at Hans Zimmer's studio mm-hmm. in his room and he's got a wall of these knob right. turning things. Some, some I think work and some don't, it doesn't matter. It's like an effect, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it's pretty cool. But the point is here we are not knowing anything about music and we're, we're diving into these and rock and roll and all mm. these things. But what's missing is, you know, where's, what's what's the c scale (laughs) or where's what's solfege or uh how do i do how do i build this chord or what are the modified chords you know what i mean music theory music theory so now it 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 was kind of hidden in the context of these other musical Mm -hmm. expressions so it wasn't totally not there but i don't really remember it as a core element Mm. but yet that was one of the coolest things about this course or this whole program. And so in that sense, it was fantastic. Wow. Mm. Who gets that? Right. I was doing electric. I, you know, I remember recording a piece and you had to record material, sound material, and then you would be slicing quarter inch tape and put it together. And uh, I remember going into the union and I recorded, um, cue balls where you play pool. Sure. And I wanted to record the sound of the balls rolling, uh-huh. you know, and then cut that. So we did a, just a bunch of wonderful experimental things. I really love that you're being taught through experience. It's so great for the imagination. Yes, you didn't get any music theory, but you got an experience in how to create. Yeah. Which 
if I would put it to like my experience, the creative experience wasn't always there. Every now and again, you'd have a lab or you'd have to write something. And that creative experience I had to learn afterwards, you know, to, to have that. So I find this experience that you had to be really encouraging. Mm-hmm. What a way to be introduced to music in a way that it's just, it's creativity. Because anybody can learn the theory, mm-hmm. but not everybody can be excited about the creative process. I mean, I, I take that back. Everybody can be, but not everybody is introduced to it, is what I meant. Mm-hmm. It's such a critical stage in your, your educational development. Well, I think I think you have a good point there, and um, that's exactly what happened. Mm. What was further interesting, I I did feel like something was missing, mm-hmm. which eventually propelled me to leave and pursue Berkeley. But two things happened in that school that kind of fulfilled, if you will, the traditional a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, one, I was in the uh, I was in the pit orchestra with five of my friends playing a rock musical. Right. And I'd be playing guitar. My girlfriend was playing piano and drum. It's like a simple quartet. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't know how to read music that well on guitar. I kind of had to figure it out a little bit. And But you have the charts, right? Yeah. And there are these like, you know, uh, A7, flat nine, for you know, so there are the right. chords with extensions. And I really didn't know how to play them. I had to kind of look it up or I just forget the flat nine, you know, something like that. Let the pianos take that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, someone did it or didn't do it. But the the point is, I'm kind of surprised I did that because I didn't, I was shy and I didn't feel like I was a performer per se. Mm. Um, And, but I did it. Here we did these shows and I was Mm. like guitarist in the pit. I'm going like, wow, that. Looking back, I was like, that was really cool. Yeah. And then the other thing is I, I did this. I don't even know. I, I was playing a war, as a warm-up band with some friends for a rock band at a, uh, a, a college venue. So a mm-hmm. bigger band was coming. I don't even remember the name. It probably was like a local band. And I remember I got up and I didn't really have a good guitar. So I went to the guitarist, local guitar store and said, hey, you know, I'm playing with my friends as a Murrah band. I play guitar at, the, at Moorhead. And could I borrow your Les Paul? The guy said, oh, yeah, sure. I'm going like, what? <laughs> here amazing. I am. And I did terribly, by the way. Uh, it was a terrible <laughs> show. But here I am with this, the you know, the black 500 pound Les Paul with three mm. gold pickups, you know, and I'm going oh. like, I'm playing this, like, you know, <laughs> Rolling Stone stuff and not well at all. It was oh. just, all I remember was this, this, this window. And it was just like, Oh my God, it's crazy. That's, that's really good. Um, the other thing, and now I can leave more head, but the other thing that was really cool was I studied private classical guitar. Mm. And this really, I think helped me connect guitar and note because you're reading notes, right? You've got to yeah. read. And so, while it wasn't formally being taught at Moorhead, I studied privately with James Condell, I think. I don't know how I remember these names sometimes. I love that style of guitar. Mm. Um, he would study in the summer with Segovia. Oh, wow. So who gets to go to Segovia master classes? Like, yeah. So this guy was like, and he just did it for fun, you know? Yeah. And so pretty amazing. And it was really a great experience and 
you know, again, to this day, I sit down when I play classical, you'd think, oh my God, you have to read notes and it's like stressful and all that. But I'm going like, of course, I don't, I haven't really advanced very well, but the point is I can still do some stuff. Yeah. And it's so relaxing. Oh. To me, it's kind of an escape. It's like, oh. Yeah. Even though I'm not good at it or it's, it's just, you know, it's reading notes and reading. Sure. I'm going, this is, there's something about it that's really special. So, but the whole experience after two years was fantastic, and yet I felt something was missing, mm. which was Solfege theory, yeah. you know, this kind of thing. And my sister, older sister at that point, lived in Boston, and she goes, hey, there's this school called Berkeley. Why don't you apply? You know, you could live with us until you get an apartment or something like that. And I said, well, okay, why not? It was just very happenstance, right? Uh-huh. And you apply, and I did get in as a guitarist among 600 guitar players. Know, right? As you know, <laughs> yeah. that was like the instrument. Yeah. Um, and that was the guitar path. So when you went to Berkeley, you started playing guitar. Where did film scoring enter into it? So, um, again, I, w- I could not compete, or nor I wanted to compete, with the jazz guitar world there mm-hmm. really mainly like a lot of jazz guitars players. Yeah. So I was kind of a outcast, if you will. Mm. I mean, I could kind of go through the motions and play and do my, do my little, uh, you know, jazz chart thing, you know, court vo- voice courting on, on guitar. And, and I still play that piece and mm-hmm. you know, I like it and everything, but I was not, uh, like in ensemble, I would play in an ensemble with a jazz band and I'd have to improvise. And it was just like, it, it was the worst in the world. It was just like terrible. I could yeah. not do that jazz improvisation, you know? I think maybe once I kind of was okay, but mm-hmm. it was it, it was amazingly embarrassing, actually. Well, you know? it and always is. I went through the whole thing. It is for all of us. I mean, I was the same way that, you know, until... When we, when, how do I want to say this? When we're taught to play notes and be really specific on how to read, jazz improv means you don't read and you just express from within. And that mindset is more of a free flowing mindset. And I remember for me, it was like, well, what notes do I play? Mm-hmm. Not that I, I didn't realize that it it that you sang, like yes. you know you sing from within, like you know you can, if you can scat, right? You can do that. Well, can you do that on your instrument then? Just yeah. do it on your instrument. Yes, and and, and I think you connected because I was going to say that exactly that, and this is all in hindsight because I yes. didn't do it well then. Of when I sing and then play what I sing or attempt to do that, mm. it bypasses the brain yes. in a way. However, the, the, I think the theory behind jazz improvisation, maybe many, all different kinds of improvisation is, and we we're taught in school, you may remember this, where you learn the theory, you learn the notes or the chord scales, or, mm-hmm. and then you get to throw it out and go to your place where, it's your mind is kind of 
uh, going to the singing, playing place, but you don't know it or something right. like that. Well, so yeah. I think you're right about that. It, it's an amazing thing. I didn't really have success with that, but I think that that would be the way, if you will, yeah. to, to, to hone that and to yeah. practice that. Yeah. When I was at school, they taught there were books and books on jazz licks. You know, all these two, five, one kind of, licks and you just practice licks after lick after lick and they thought that somehow by osmosis you would just start singing it but for me when i started hearing like you listen to like ella fitzgerald and she scats i'm like you know there's no lick maybe there are some licks but she's doing her own things and for me i didn't really discover that until after Berkeley as well. Yeah. So I struggled through, you know, let me just get these licks and rather than how to communicate freely through my instrument. Mm -hmm. And that's what actually turned me on to writing because you're communicating freely and it just goes into your writing mm -hmm. and other people will play it. Right. Um, all right. So you're at Berkeley, you're playing guitar you didn't want to compete with the jazz musicians, and I get that. I mean, you know, well, I, I think you compete. I wasn't into it. I'm and you know, you've heard my story when I was there as a trumpet player, and you know, yeah. Wynton Marcellus comes over and gives <laughs> high school student kind of blows the door off of everybody. Yeah. How did you find film scoring? I was in comp degree, mm -hmm. so I wasn't in performance because I kind of felt like I just was not a performer, mm -hmm. a showman, if you will, even though I've done some of that. So it would be composition. This yeah. would be how I would express myself. And I didn't know how that would unfold or really what that meant. Mm -hmm. I did graduate there uh, out of the four-year program. Unfortunately, many of my credits from Moorhead didn't translate. Mm -hmm. And so I was okay. I wasn't great. But I liked the composition, John Bavicki, and I liked mm -hmm. doing the, I would try to, stretch the envelope and, you know, really try to be, I thought, you know, this avant-garde, mm. you know, approach and this kind of thing. So I like that kind of thing. I like Alvinberg and Bartok and all that, but the, the not so stretched people in Stravinsky. But my last year, I had a friend who played guitar and wrote songs and I literally didn't know how it was going to all unfold. And he said, he's a, he was in New York. His, his mom owned a small, non-equity theater and he could stay in New York and Manhattan. And he says, I want to go, let's start a band. I want to become a famous rock star, rock, you know, writer. So, okay. So I went with him. I took a year off. Mm -hmm. We found a bass player, a drummer, a saxophone player. Mm -hmm. And I was guitar and vocals and, and, and Robert was lead guitar and lead vocals and mostly his, all his songs. We'd rehearse in a studio in Manhattan and we do showcases. So this was a year. And this was when punk was uh, like taken over. totally taken yeah. over. Yeah. And we would desperately put leaflets out. We'd spray our band's name on the sidewalk. The logo. <laughs> it was called Hot Rain. The band was Hot Rain. Hot Rain. What an experience that was. I had an apartment that I paid half rent with, with somebody. My brother-in-law had a new friend that's like mm -hmm. the studio play. And... I'd walk to this, it was near the other place, near in Chelsea, near the Chelsea Hotel and all that. And man, what a what an experience to live in New York on your own and um, do these showcases. Uh, we did Max's Kansas City. 
we were doing, uh, you know, uh, bitter end. We did, these are like one night things that kind of mm. on off night you say, you know, you go and set up and play right? and all these things. It was an amazing experience. We didn't get a record deal. He even knew the, the, the president of Arista records, his mom did or something, but mm-hmm. and we get some feedback. We get little write-ups in the paper this kind of thing. So we didn't get a record deal. It was great fun. We recorded demos, things like that, but it didn't kick in like we were getting fame and fortune. So uh, that was a year uh, inside of Berkeley's. I took a year off. Uh, My parents said, okay, look, if you want to stay in New York and be a rock star and, you know, and pursue that dream, it's like, that's fine, but we can't support you. Mm -hmm. So they kind of put their foot down in a nice way. Mm-hmm. However, we would like you to go back and finish Berkeley. We'll pay for that year. And then, you know, say, and my friend was kind of in a similar boat. Like he right. felt the need to, you know, finish. And so we both went back and that was my last year. So mm-hmm. then we went back. So I actually was there, f- I mean, five years of time, but. Sure. So during that last year, knowing that I, even though I was performing <laughs> in New York, um, I did. I still didn't feel that that was my forte, my solo forte, if you will. Mm, you know, as being a sure. rock star. And I took Don Wilkins' film scoring class. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how I got there in a way, but like it was an elective and this kind of thing in the composing program. However, as both you probably would contest, it's like that was inspiring. Sure. You know, you record the pieces to, to picture and you record them in the, you know, the you got players all over, right? So you go to the studio and record. And so you had recordings and, and this kind of thing. And I learned editing on a Steamback, right? 60 millimeter film. We were cutting. We were, you know, so I took both his classes and, you know, this kind of thing. And he was also uh, became a friend and, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, in many ways. I came to make a decision and it wasn't necessarily a like, oh my God, light bulb went off. This is my dream and I have to do this. But it was in some way to, I want to be a film composer. Mm. And I connected, and I don't know whether it's actually true or accurate, but Mm. I did. I connected my father's world of visual art to Mm. my world now of music. What do you mean by connected? Tell me about that. Well, connected by way of a film score. Mm. So film music is attached to visual. I see. And so I was kind of connecting the dots, if you will, of my family's kind of all our creative paths Mm -hmm. and how I would. And I think it, it kind of was a justification in a way. In what way? Well, okay, how can I justify wanting to become a famous film composer? Uh, not just to myself, but maybe to my parents. Or my, mm-hmm. Now, they, they've always, they're very supportive. They've always said, you can kind of do whatever you want, mm-hmm. right? Whatever yeah. you're so passionate about. And so it wasn't so much that, but it was something about, I think there was kind of a justification mm-hmm. in that, how, why would you choose this or, or what is it about it? And so I kind of connected that visual world that I grew up with, with the music world that I was in and, and how do I put those together? Well, I'll become a film composer. Right. In some ways I'll be like dad, but different. Uh, maybe. 
<laughs> yeah. But but it wasn't even so much being like, well, maybe psychologically, subconsciously, it was being like dad, as yeah. sons want to be like their fathers. Uh, I wasn't so, I don't think I was conscious of that, and it mm. wasn't particularly discussed, per se. Sure. Did you know that my father was suggesting that I become an architect, that he felt oh. I, w- I would be good at that. Why? He he always loved architecture and had probably a dream himself mm. of going in that. And he works architecturally in some ways. In his sure. There was an experience where we had a lake cabin and it, it was a very casual wooden structure, very simple, uh, but it had a big deck. And I know you're not showing I'm showing you with my hands, but yeah. under the deck, there was nothing. There was just poles holding up that because it was sure. on a hill. Sure. He built a studio for himself underneath by himself. He couldn't figure out how to put the roof on because you needed a separate kind of roof because there were a deck above which would leak water. And I said, well, why don't you hang the roof from the rafters under the deck? So it was a conceptual thing of like how to solve this problem. And mm-hmm. I think he was, he, he claims that there was like this amazing gift that I had for solving these architectural problems. And I think that probably propelled him into thinking that. Mm. Um, and I wasn't necessarily opposed to it, but I just didn't feel, I, I decided yeah. I wanted to pursue this. Mm-hmm. So, which propelled me to Hollywood, becoming a famous film composer. And I was going to do that. And I was very driven and um, literally drove out with uh, a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And my, my wife flew with our 18-month-old to uh, California. And uh, Catherine uh, didn't want to go. Mm-hmm. She loved the East Coast, uh, but she moved um, for me for my dream. Mm. So, so you guys move out to LA. So how did you start? What did you do? I would start by, um, either of us had jobs and, but fortunately my wife got a job at UCLA Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, the history there a little bit and Mm -hmm. supporting the family. It's very critical to have partners that are supportive of this kind of thing because, as you know, it's a struggle, a uh, major struggle. Mm-hmm. And she's been wonderful ever since uh, in that way very often. Um, but she's amazing. So how I pursued that path, uh, Don Wilkins gave me a name of a couple people. For composing or music editing? Um, for composing. Uh-huh. Because music editing wasn't even on the radar. Okay. This was not even like, I didn't even know what it was or it just was like, yeah. So I would uh, put together demos. I had uh, built a little studio with my, uh, had a synth and a, you know, basic sequencer and a couple rack, very, very simple and basic that people would, if they looked at it, they would laugh, you know? Mm. Um, and literally I would build these things in my, you know, in my laundry room mm-hmm. kind of thing. Uh, and so, and do demos and whatever I could do to write sample pieces, if you will. And I would put together my resumes and send those out. And this is all like mailing and and calling, cold calling. I would, um, try to connect up with and sit in on, uh, which I had some success at, uh, Mike Post sessions. I don't know if you know Mike Post. Sure. He was one of the top television composers. Oh yeah. And many of his writers, orchestrators would write show parts of his, his music for his shows. He had a lot of shows and I met a number of them there. Mm-hmm. So I was just trying to hang out uh, in this environment 
uh, and to learn by listening. I was in the yeah. booth and he, Mike Post was very open to having people, yeah. certain people come. And so somehow I was able to do that. Um, and I did that for some time and put together demos and I sent Mike a demo and, and he, he said it was great, you know, really good stuff and all that. And eventually he, he couldn't take demos anymore because there was too much, he couldn't accept, listen to demo and then there be, might be issues with, Hey, you played that on my show. Right. Liability stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So eventually he couldn't do that, but this was in the earlier days. So I really did not get much work mm. at all. Um, no orchestration work. Uh, no, I did a copy job here and there. No playing? Uh, no playing. Because I wasn't putting myself out as a player Yeah. at all. I just, uh, you know, I just wasn't in that. Didn't want to go there. Mm-hmm. So I pursued that for, for many, many years. Like um, how many years when you say many, many years? Well, <laughs> it, it came out to a, at least 10 or 12 years. Okay. Of doing this kind of work. Now, I did do some independent films. I did some low-budget films. I was music director at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion for a high school Mm -hmm. show of artists, and I had to arrange and get a band together, and I was, you know... But it was really, it was, it was a, some part of that was kind of embarrassed. People expected me to be able to play piano and, uh, and rehearse. And I right. really couldn't play piano that well. I wasn't like a great reader or anything like that. Yeah. So I was kind of, I was really fumbling. There were so many of these situations, if I look back, that I kind of fumbled my way through stuff. Mm. And that brings, you know, in hindsight, again, a lot of this stuff, as you know, uh, is in hindsight, uh, it, it kind of, can develop into uh, self-doubt or question. But sure. as you're younger and doing all this, you kind of do whatever you can. Right. And yeah. you, you kind of say yes, even though, you know. Well, you say yes, and you hope that, you know, you find your way to get through it um, because it's the opportunity that's before you. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't like there wasn't anything, but I really didn't make a significant amount of money or, you know, and all during this time, I was really the house husband taking care. Mm-hmm. We had another, we had our daughter after a while. And um, I was taking care of the kids. My wife had the full-time job, thank God. And she was doing great. Her career is very successful. That was kind of the, the deal. I would, mm-hmm. as we're in daycare, I would write and meet, try to meet people and pursue things. And then I would take care of the kids. I would pick her up from work and cook and do a mm-hmm. cleaning here. And she did some of that, but... I was kind of, our roles were, were such sure. that this is how it, it, it yeah. kind of, you know. Evolved. That was the agreement that you two shared. Yeah. Yeah. How was it for you, I mean, for 10 or 12 years uh, and not getting to where you wanted to go, how did that, how did you overcome that hurdle? How did you deal with that? It seemingly like the doors were just not opening the way you had hoped. Exactly. How was that? Um, it, it was depressing mm-hmm. and very difficult. And I think particularly difficult for, for Catherine in some ways because it wasn't happening. Yeah. Like you came here with your dream and we're in pursuing your dream, not in a bad way or a critical way, but it's like you got to look at this because what's the answer? And when right. I came out, you may have gotten the same same. Uh, statement or thing that I don't think Berkeley or faculty for whatever reason, don't really prepare you for a lot of the reality 
there was a general rule of thumb that you should be prepared for five or 10 years. Right? <laughs> and what does that even mean? No. No, it means you should be prepared to not make any money for five years or 10 right. years. That's and, the, yeah. and who can do that? I don't know. I, I, I have to say I was fortunate to have a partner that sure. struggled. I'm telling you, it was a struggle. It was amazing. We still reflect. It was amazing. We did what we did. Mm. And we were able to do some traveling and, and mm -hmm. raise, raise a family and put food on the table and pay the rent. Mm -hmm. So thank God for that. What I did do on the side is I was a waiter. Mm -hmm. So I waited tables. Yeah, that must have been a lot of fun. No. Uh, well, I did that for nine years in Boston. Wow. After, at, so again, this didn't happen right after school. I stayed in Boston for 10 years. Oh, wait. So after Berkeley, you stayed in Boston for 10 years? Yeah. And you I pursued... graduated in 77, and we didn't move out till 85. So were you trying to pursue film scoring from Boston? Yeah. So oh. we kind of skipped that world a little bit. Whoops. Yeah. That? That's a, that must have been, that made it harder, I would imagine. Well, I figured I might as well try to, again, I was waiting tables part time and doing okay with that. And that's where we, we met and we had an apartment. So Catherine and I met there. So we were pursuing our life and she had a job at a hospital. But um, I did a uh, animated film mm -hmm. and I was able to record musicians. I did a, like a, I did infomercials. I did little commercials, jingles, sure. little yeah. tiny things like hundred bucks here, five hundred, whatever. Yeah, that's all in Boston. And I would I would travel down to New York, and I would knock on doors at Sound One and these places, and try to get into you know shop my demo and uh, that whole thing. I know you talk a lot about that, the New York. Yeah. World. And so I did that a number of times and I knew um, the, the guys at uh, soundtrack in Boston. Yeah. And John Keel was like a buddy and he was one of the major guys there. And I did three demos there that sounded great. I said, would you record these? Cause I really needed a good recording. And then they opened New York soundtrack. And I was in I haven't been in touch since really for many, many years, but I was in touch with him when he was in New York for a while. And Steve Gabb was like the drummer guy and all that. Right. I mean, whole, whole world. And I was in touch with him a little bit, but that was not quite so the film world, but what I was trying to tap into was the jingle world or commercial. Because that really more kind of New York and then LA, Hollywood, the film world, if you will. And so while during that time after school, that's what I was trying to tap into is, uh, any kind of film, uh, TV or jingles or commercials. And I did some stints at these studios for free. I would do mm -hmm. their library and I would record their records, sound effects. And uh, there was this one place in, in Cambridge um, where for free after school, I'd, for three days a week, I would go in and they had a little audio studio with a reel-to-reel and I would be the person managing their sound effects, if you will. Sure. It like, it got to be kind of like bogus, like they really didn't need that because they were one of the first people that developed, that had the CMX system, which is the uh, three quarter inch videotape editing system. And they were doing commercials and they were like, really, they were successful, mm -hmm. but they kind of didn't really have a need for someone like me, even though I kind of hung out, I guess they weren't paying, so what the hell, you know, but there's a little point there that I think back and I go, you know, that was a per that would have been a perfect situation for me to learn video editing. 
Yeah, but that wasn't your passion. You weren't. Yeah, sometimes you, you, you're on a path and you think, this is my world. This is what I have to be. And there are opportunities scattered about within that time mm-hmm. that you go, mm, wait, what about, the, are you open for, what about this? Did you think of this? And so, again, it's all, this stuff is very often hindsight, you know, sure. that I could learned at night and had this guy train me that was edited and probably be cutting commercials. Now who right. knows where that have taken my whole world. Right. Right. I have no idea. Maybe I stayed there. Maybe I was a video editor. Maybe I not. know, but the woulda, shoulda, couldas, man. I mean, how can any of well, us look back and, and say, you know, I could have had a different life. I mean, yeah, it's all hypothetical. And, yeah. but what I want to understand is that, so you, you finished Berkeley You stayed in Boston for 10 years trying to work as a film composer uh, doing or jingles or reaching out to LA. Um, But after 10 years, what made you decide to go to LA? Well, if I truly, I wasn't finding success at my, that direction in, in, right in Boston. And I, uh, I, again, that's where I really kind of officially, in my mind, put together the film composer. Okay. And Got so it. I either needed to be in Hollywood or not do it, like many others. So you either need to go or not. Right. So you guys went. Yeah. And then from that point, once you were in Hollywood, was that another 10 years? Like, how long did you continue? Was yeah. it so 10 years in Boston, trying to do Boston, New York, and then 10 years yeah. in Hollywood? Yeah. And that's where you did the Mike Post stuff and you started reaching out to different, whatever, composers, oppor- trying to find opportunity after opportunity. Right. And as you look back, I, I would imagine that would have been very depressing, very frustrating. Well, my, I have two questions. What, as you look back, what do you think was the difference of having the opportunities or not? And, and before you answer that, I, my second question is, what got you to the point of saying, all right, I'm just going to do music editing and, and I shouldn't say just, I'm going to do music editing. There's something I can do there. When you look at the two, You know, if you can look back, is it one of those things where it just wasn't in the cards, which is a real simple way of saying that I'm not really sure why it didn't work. So can you look back at that and go, yeah, I think it was this, this or this, or I don't know. I did all that I could do. What, what is it for you? And how did you feel about it when you decided to go into Music editing, did it feel like you were defeated? Right. So thank you for asking that. I think that that um, to to cite the title of your show, this is truly a pivot point. Mm -hmm. Uh, As as you can see, there's a lot of little, you know, turns and twists and decisions that we make. But I think this was a major pivot point for me. And after quite some time, as as we're finding out, um, from graduating Berkeley. Um, so my rec, my, my reflection on that, and I've done this quite a bit and I do share this sometimes with, with students and such, but, 
that whole time of pursuing the dream, composing, uh, becoming a famous film composer, um, I, I kind of had blinders on because I felt like you need to have blinders on in order to, to go for something like this. You've got to stay focused. Um, the part of the reason why I feel in hindsight, in, re in reflection, why I didn't find that quote unquote success that I was after is I'm not sure that I really had the full skill sets uh, at my fingertips, so to speak, of a, I'm going to say, real composer. And I know mm -hmm. that you're going to argue that point and all that, like what is a real composer and all this. But uh, if, I, if I were to compare that with, uh, I'm not going to rattle names, but you and I sure. both know composers that are like, oh my God, they, and I know it's not a quick thing, but they can write this world, this style of film scoring with their eyes closed. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not, it's not saying it's always easy, but there's something about it, a knack. Mm -hmm. And a, a knack is actually too simplified a word, mm -hmm. but it's kind of like a knack mm -hmm. um, to do that work. So I don't think that showed in my music or my persona Hmm. or maybe even how I was presenting myself. Those are all kind of reflective ifs, like hmm. you don't really know. Because 90% of the people that I would approach or talk to or even have a chance to meet, they were all very nice. They all said, hey, you write great music. No one is really going to be in their right mind in Hollywood is going to be you suck. Right. Right. <laughs> in a way, because they have to kind of protect themselves because maybe you really don't. And, you know, Spielberg's going to hire you for the next right, movie. Right, and then right. Come on. But the point is, um, it, it, that whole time was kind of in a narrow world. And I was pursuing what I thought one needed to do to succeed. I don't know that I pursued or asked for as much true advice as I should have or could have mm. from people that are going to actually tell me the truth, mm -hmm. right? I think we're always kind of after the truth. And that might have helped either me go like, hey, this is not for me, or yeah, you should keep going. Um, the other part to that composing world and its difficulty was, yes, it was a challenge. Yes, it was difficult. A couple things stand out as an interesting comments on that. Uh, Doreen Ringer Ross was mm -hmm. a person that I had, had known for many years. And when I first came out here, we've met and we, you know, we both know her. And I was calling her here and there and said, you know what, this is, I'm pursuing composing and I want to come out here. And this is earlier on. And what advice you have? She says, and I was having doubts, you know, mm. and she said, look, you wouldn't be here if you couldn't do this. Mm. It was something to that effect of like, you're doing it. And so this wouldn't be happening in any way unless you were meant to do this, if mm -hmm. you will. Mm -hmm. So she was really kind of touching into something interesting. Now, as we see, I made this transition into music editorial 
And I can talk about that whole thing. So this whole composing world came to a head, if you will, or came to a conclusion in some ways uh, around uh, my wife and I had, Catherine and I had a discussion um, as I was really terrible at paying visa bills on time and Mm -hmm. juggling money. And I just kind of was like this space shot, (laughs) hippie musician, if you will. I was just kind of clueless, you know, I just didn't do very well with that. And it was a constant, you know, frustration, right? Because this is critical when you're not really have a lot of income, you're raising a family, you got to really pay attention. So, and I wasn't doing so well with that. And it came to a point of, um, and I'm not blaming her for saying, you know, you have to change or stop composing. Wasn't saying that she was very supportive. It's like, look, if you want to do that, do it. But I'm just telling you that things have got to change here. Yeah. And around that time, and it wasn't like at that moment I made a decision to shift. Um, I was in a situation currently where I uh, was in a sharing studio space with a guy at Raleigh Studios, which is across from uh, Paramount. Mm -hmm. And it was two rooms. And I brought my gear in there and this guy said, Leonard Marcel is the name. And he said, he mixed the first Dumb and Dumber movie or something. Mm-hmm. And he does commercials, writing. He says, get this drum machine, get Pro Tools and bring your gear in. We'll work together. And he's kind of a, a, mover, a mover and a shaker type guy. And I said, okay, well, that's, that's cool. Let's, let's try that, you know. And the two other people in, the, in his little group, the four of us, was Andrew DiCristofaro, who's now a very established sound supervisor, mm-hmm. and Stuve, and I forgot his last name, but he's cutting sound. He was just got in the Academy, he cut sound on Star Wars and all this. Mm. So the, the four of us were trying to work and do mm. whatever we could. And this whole, it kind of gave me a little taste of uh, post-production sound. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know that. Mm. It was more like composing and doing commercials, whatever I, I was still in that world. But the, here's the pivot point that happened around that, that time. So in my mind, I'm, something has to happen. I've got to change. So this was an opportunity. Well, maybe this will help change yeah. my career path and make it more successful. So I'm in this, uh, we're in this little studio. I have set up over here that Leonard's got his stuff in the other room and we're kind of doing our thing, right? Whatever we can do and, you know, this kind of thing. Kind of independent, but together in a way. Sure. I uh, buy Pro Tools. And at that point, this was earlier on. Yeah. And no one reads the manual and you just kind of learn as you go, right? And the other guys, Stuve, and, and they were had the same. He had a system too, and and they were kind of learning sound and all this kind of stuff. Um, I got a gig, and it was I don't know if it paid very much or not, but in that environment, I got a gig from um, Adam Nimoy, mm-hmm. so Leonard Nimoy's son, and he had an independent film that he did, and he needed the sound cut, and I cut the sound. Mm. Here I was involved with post production sound. Yeah. Not the music, not the music editing, but I just kind of delivered these things. And then I was doing other things like I cut the uh, airplane uh, CD for uh, the sound, sound ideas library. Uh-huh. So I was getting airplane dats of like, um, you know, true lies and like jets F-50 for taking off and jet engines. And I had to decide between <laughs> these three jet engines, like which one was the best takeoff. So I, okay, well, let's use that one. I cut that one in and I uh-huh. built a track and they would make the CD, you know, this kind. So I was doing these various kind of, 
cutting thing because Pro Tools was coming in and I was doing it on Pro Tools and all that kind of stuff. So I get the, and I don't know how this happened. So here's the pivot point. I don't know how this happened exactly other than I get a call from Ken Carmen at Modern Music. It's yeah. a music house. And he says, so, you know, you're doing sound and I got your name or you called me. And I don't know how it happened. I said, yeah. And um, I'm a musician and all this kind of thing. And he said, so we have this thing that we need cut by tomorrow. And it wasn't on Pro Tools. You have to go to this other room and it's cut on a some DAW that's on a computer screen. And it, it was like Waveframe or some other. Yeah. It wasn't even Waveframe, though, I'm telling you. It was like, mm. and I had no clue how to run that machine. I really didn't. And mm. But it was music editing something. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what it was. I have no clue, but it was kind of an all-nighter thing. Right. I did this thing, and I I don't remember anything about it other than jumping into this one deal, like kind of a fire, saying yes, <laughs> which was probably really stupid because I really <laughs> didn't know what I was doing. And I did this thing, and I guess it was like okay, or somehow it. I don't know what happened after that, other than the next step was. Not it didn't follow exactly, but then I started being invited to come to Modern Music to help them with their Pro Tools because they uh-huh. just got Pro Tools, and they were cutting Judge Judge Dread. Uh huh. So this goes back the first one, and they were cutting it on Mag. Yeah. And Pro Tools. So Modern Music wanted somebody that knew Pro Tools to kind of be an advisor, if you will. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if I made any money, but I just started interfacing with them, coming in, maybe helping. Now you have to understand that when Pro Tools was coming in, no one really knew it really well. It was just Mm. kind of like, you know, maybe I knew it a little more than this person, but it really wasn't that much. So it was kind of a, again, one of these flying by the seat of your pants. But it got me involved there and I, actually started cutting over there. This is non-union and I was cutting over there and I did some temp stuff and I really liked that because it's very creative. And I just kind of was invited to stick around. Mm-hmm. If, uh, I don't even think it was an officially roster type of thing. They had some people, their mainstays, but right. But I was kind of teaching like uh, uh, Brent Brooks, I was teaching him Pro Tools. And like, so these guys that are used to mag or something, you know. Now, all around this, during this time, I also was cutting sound effects and dialogue mm-hmm. on a machine that I can't remember the name of it, but it was like an all-in-one computer, like Editol or something mm-hmm. like that. And at the, in those days, you would be, maybe still today, you'd be hired to cut sound mm-hmm. for like a one reel, mm-hmm. you know. So you didn't have a whole show, but hey, I need real five by tomorrow. Can you just, here's the stuff. Can you just cut real five? Right. right. And I'd be doing that at this place over, in, I can't remember where, one a Burbank and I'd go upstairs and I'd spend a day or two and they'd pay me 500 bucks or something. Mm-hmm. And literally I'm cutting sound and and I would do, you know, car crashes and car engine. I mean, like I could do right. all this stuff. So I got my hand in a little bit of sound and dialogue editing, but it really wasn't official like, so you're saying then it just kind of evolved into this editorial opportunity. One thing just kind of unfolded after another. Is that how I'm understanding it? Yes. And so I think this became a pivot point because 
I didn't have my blinders on for composing. Mm-hmm. I was open mm-hmm. for these other things. Not unlike open for playing in New York, open for John Cage music, open for classical guitar. You know, I kind of opened to these areas, but I think perhaps knowing our personal home situation, our, our need for something else to happen, yeah. I think I finally, you know, put two and two together after many years of maybe not doing that. But the point is, it, it evolved in a situation where um, uh, I was hanging out more and I was, they were paying me to do some mm. work and, and this kind of thing over a period of time. Maybe it was a year or so. I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the thing that kind of really kicked it in more officially, it was kind of, the writing was kind of on the wall in a good way that this was a career path. I'm going like, you know, this, this is not bad. This is really cool. I like the technology. I like the the music part of it, of course, and connecting the dots. So I was really at that point kind of, um, becoming focused. Uh, there, there came a day where they needed, uh, they got a call and they needed an assistant for, a film and um, like by Monday, if you will. And no one was quite available in that roster, if you will. So they put my name in for an assistant and I got the gig and I had to be in the union. So literally I was grandfathered in the union one day. Oh, wow. Which was kind of a miracle in itself. Yeah, that is. fees, And all of a sudden I was on the Disney lot, you know, yeah. uh, assisting Laura Perlman with The Preacher's Wife. Wow. On Zimmer's score. And, um, you know, <laughs> this is all Pro Tools, of course. And so I was an assistant in those days, and Pro Tools was really managing files that were lost. Like, you can't find files. And, right. like, making sure everything was there and, 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 and note-taking and backups mm-hmm. and crazy stuff. And they had Mag at the same time, I think. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really doing Mag now. I didn't. I learned a little bit about it, but I came in that world late, Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't have my hands on that uh, other than uh, just a little bit. So mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. really entered into the, the digital uh, you know, world, if you will. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the official, you know, union. It's great. You know, let me let me go for this. So my idea was I would go for this. Uh, become I would become a music editor kind of had my focus and yet I always thought in the back of my head at at night or weekends I would write music and still pursue writing music while becoming a music editor Mm -hmm. Um, needless to say yeah as you know it's a it's an all-encompassing work when you have a gig you know and that didn't last long it would just did not just wasn't practical you know it just didn't work out to be able to pursue both those things with mm. mm-hmm. so um that's where i pivoted to Ma- major <laughs> shift what's really uh remarkable in this is that you know you spent a number of years pursuing a creative outlet and then you shifted into another version of that creative outlet and have done very well in that. You've worked on a lot of big movies. And you have written the book on music editing now. There is no other book out there about music editing. When, when I was studying at Berkeley under, in the film composition uh, degree program, 
they also had a book about music editing. And I remember that was one of the electives I, I took. And that book was written by Milton Lustig. I still have it here. Right. Yes. And it, it talked all about, you know, the click track book and how to, how to do streamers, um, how to do your math for 35 millimeter and 16 millimeter. And that book gave you a complete overview of music editing at that time. Your book now does that same thing. And it is the only book I know of on the market that has firsthand experience, like Milton Lustig from Hollywood, uh, citing real situations for today's music editor. I say all this to say that it's really interesting how our lives do unfold and somehow we end up going in a different direction. Then out of that, you, you've spun some gold out of it. I mean, that's a wonderful book. You've worked on a lot of movies that are high-profile movies, and you're still working, and you're still playing. I mean, I've had you play guitar on my stuff and harmonica, which we didn't even get into that. Um, it's very fascinating, our journey, especially when we decide to just be open about it at To Use Your Terms. I think that those are perfect points, and thanks for the the, the mention about the book too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think, and again, some of this stuff I think that you're pointing out these different journeys or different um, branches of one's tree, right? Mm. You 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 branch out into this, branch out into this. It's all you. You're mm -hmm. the tree, but yet you can do one can do multiple things. Mm -hmm. So I think it took many years, but, but literally the book idea was literally, Hey, I think I'll write a book. I mean, like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of people say that. Um, but I, I, I guess what's, what's, what you're, you're, you're now giving me some personal reflection points that I didn't think about. And thank you for this is that, I will admit that these different branches I've chosen at whatever time I did put both feet in, you know, uh, once that decision was, was made, mm -hmm. whether it was, I didn't succeed in composing or not. I mean, I, I felt I went all in, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. or the music editing, like, okay, I'm all in. And that was 20 years ago. Right. Mm -hmm. Or the book. I'm all in. I got, when I first pursued the idea, I wrote a proposal and it was thrown out. It was like, no, I, no one's going to buy this book from mm. one person. I said, well, that's interesting. And then about eight months later, I go, I found a name of somebody with the same publisher going, well, wait, the first person was in the film department of that publishing company. This other person is in the music department. Mm. Of course, this book straddles both. And I'm going, right. I'll, I'll ask her. <laughs> right, yeah. She goes, oh, have you talked to the guy in the film thing? And I go, <laughs> yes, they declined. And he goes, she goes, oh, hmm, interesting. Well, let me see what I can do. And she presented it. It was a time, timely thing. She presented it, and the board of directors or the people that decide said, okay, let's do it. And so I didn't get shot down totally the first time. Yeah. It came up again of like, well, 
hey, maybe I can still make this happen. And I didn't yeah. think that at the time. But so all these things are, I think, points to your, all your pivot point, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, persons and, and interviewees, that there are multiple paths. And how do you learn even at a younger age or at an earlier age in one's career? I felt I came late into mm-hmm. some of these confident or a confidence about pursuing something mm-hmm. all in. And so I think maybe some of the lessons with everyone's story is often how do you, and I think what you're teaching with your program here is look, take some of these stories, take them to heart earlier on in your life, in your career, because then you really never see how many branches you could see or what might. And so yeah. I think this is part of the, one of the critical things that you're exposing here that I think is, 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 is fascinating. You know? mm, well, thank you. Yeah. So one last question. What would you say to the young Stephen now? I, I think I probably would say, why are you spending 13, 15, 20 years pursuing something, the composing, without really looking at it? It's a double-edged sword. You want to stick with something all in in order to find success. But then when do you make the decision that uh, it's not successful or yeah. I'm not going to be a success for whatever yeah. reason? So I think I probably would have shortened that. <laughs> um, uh, and however, in that, that being said, in order to perhaps achieve success, I probably should have changed my tack to make more emphasis in meeting people and befriending mm. others in, in the other composers or producers, directors, mm-hmm. whoever, and really making those personal connections. Because as you're alluding to, that is very often that that that's the key i think Mm -hmm. you have to have the other you have to be prepared in all the other ways and yet it's those personal trustworthy connections that i think is critical for a career path to succeed so Mm -hmm. those are my two reflections uh, on that Mm. if if i can just talk about the two more two more things just sure uh, and you can edit them, we can go to the end or whatever you want to do. But the other branch or other prong to composing music, editing, writing a book, and as you're alluding to, uh, and I look in hindsight and go like, well, gee, I have done quite a bit, I guess, you know, if I ever <laughs> ever doubt myself, you know, and of course my wife brings us up like, look, man, you've, you're successful. Yeah. Don't sweat it. But anyway, that's, we have our own stuff. But the point is I started teaching Pro Tools in their Pro Tools ACI curriculum. Mm. And it was kind of one of these things like, what the hell? I'm not doing anything. I'm not making any money. Maybe I'll do this. What's that about? And I was one of two instructors in their education program, which started in 2002-ish or 2000 uh, with the other guy, Joel Krantz. There were like two of us. And we taught the the Pro Tools curriculum. Mm -hmm. So I started doing that. And then the place where I was teaching that had, I looked at one of their flyers and they're teaching music editing. I'm going, oh, well, that's cool. And I went to this video symphony back when it started. And I looked at what they were listing as music editing. I'm going like, this is all wrong. 
Oh, that's why. I was music editing by then. So yeah. this, the teaching, the, the, the Pro Tools is on the side, you know, and yeah. whatever. And so I'm going, I went to the teach, the owner and I said, look, you know, I see this class, but uh, I'm a music editor and this is all wrong. Why don't I write a course for you? Wow. And, and I said, the only deal is you don't have to pay me. It's just that I get to own the course. In other words, you can't own it, right. but I'll teach for you and then you can pay me. And I did, I wrote a curriculum and I taught at Video Symphony Pro Tools and music editing because they had a whole post-production thing going with the sound and all that. And I, I developed their P, uh, pizza and post night where <laughs> they get to come in and I invited Bill Steinkamp to I give, I have people come and talk and then they'd have pizza, you know, we wouldn't have mm-hmm. kids would have pizza, talk about posts. And I developed some things over there. And that was really cool. And I said, well, wow, I'm teaching this class. And then what I got a call from musicians institute and they have just started developing a post sound class uh which was truly you know sound effects dialogue Mm -hmm. you know uh, post sound i did music editing and i honed the class brick and mortar one day a week 12 hours a day with four you know different Mm. teaching class the same class four times in one day and then Mm -hmm. And that was cool. I'm going like, oh, this is, that's cool. You know, I, I like this. And I, I kind of got too busy music editing sometimes, so I had to get yeah. subbed. But the point is, that parlayed as a guide for me for the book, actually. It's like, well, wait, why can't I write a mm. book? And I used a lot of that information, uh, kind of the, the coursework, if you will. It's not really exactly, but some things for the, for, for the book thing. And then, so that was kind of this whole other thing Then, as you say, I'm still doing and developing mm-hmm. and I've done lectures and, and uh, you know, different programs um, uh, and uh, uh, you know, workshops around mm-hmm. music editing, the uh, to bring it up to a little more current. And then you can, then we can go on to what you like, but just as a plug, I actually am writing a second book mm-hmm. as you probably know. And so that'll be out next year. And I'm just starting to develop that right now. Um, and it'll be a little different format, not music editing per se, but all around um, the film compo- film scoring, the soundtrack development and how that gets to the finish line. So it's mm. really the people in all the music in a movie or TV show and those four key players and their lives in, in this kind of thing. Mm, so that's that's going to be great. You know, I uh, didn't mention the name of the first book. What What's the title? Uh, of the first book? Yep. It's Music Editing for Film and Television, The Art and Process. There you go. And where can people get it? Uh, Amazon, and there's also other retailers. There's also the publisher, which mm-hmm. is Rutledge Press, um, they have it on their site and the prices of these things vary all the time. And, um, uh, I can share with you, uh, I think I have a discount available or something like that. And they have educational discounts. And things. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for, <laughs> yeah. thank you. For well, that. I'm just putting it out there because if anybody's interested, um, you can Google Steven Saltzman and, um, and you can find his book and, uh, where you can find the discounts as well. Buddy, this was great. Thank you for sharing your journey and giving your time and being on the show. Thank you so much for 
pursuing and being and and uh, <laughs> I'm really glad I did this. I, I hope it was helpful and informative. And uh, you asked perfect questions, and I just wish you all the best success. Uh, not you. only in your writing and, and your work, but Pivot Point and uh, all the great people you have on here. So, again, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's been really fun. Thanks. Cool, man. All right. Well, we'll talk soon. All right. Well, what do you think about that? Not exactly the straight shot. He had a focus. He certainly gave it his all. Almost a decade in Boston, or was there a decade in Boston? And then another decade here in L.A. And really putting everything he had into that one part of his creativity. And as he said, you know, he had blinders on. But then, as life does, it brings these events to us that make us go, hmm, what if? And through the what if, Stephen has done so much. As I mentioned, his book is the book on music editing. There is no other book. And so if you're interested, check it out. Track them down. You never know. What if? Okay, next week's guest. Well, it's going to be a mystery. There you go. Take care of yourself. Stay healthy, and remember, if he's doing it, why not you? Mm-hmm.